in our story of, of all of life is all for Jesus. And in this series, we've been looking at um, specifically marriage. If all of life is all for Jesus, where do we as married people live most of our life? Married. So if I'm going to live all for life, all for Jesus, that's probably a key place. I've got to see how does Jesus transcend all of that. And it's usually in a marriage that uh, God uses that relationship to expose the things we need to work on. Isn't that true, those of you that are married? Um, you think you really know yourself, and then you get married, and you find out, I guess there's some things I need to learn about me. So we're in the middle of this series, and most of you this morning would say you're committed to a biblical view of marriage, and Chris has spent a couple weeks talking about that and what that looks like. However, even though we say we're committed to a biblical marriage, I think sometimes we still can kind of feel like marriage is supposed to make me happy. It's supposed to take away my loneliness. It should give me a sense of being loved, and it should provide some kind of meaning in my life. Uh, we have on the back table uh, a sheet there that in one page lists Satan's doctrine of marriage. If you haven't grabbed that in the last couple of weeks, you need to take a look at it because on that is 15 lies about marriage that Satan wants you to believe. Now, some of you aren't married here this morning. You're going, what in the world does this have to do with me? We're going to talk uh, about you at the end, but here's what I want to say up front. All these things you're learning about marriage are not things that you have to wait until you're married to learn about. As a matter of fact, the more you learn now, the better that transition may be if God provides marriage for you at some point in your life. Um, for a number of years, I oversaw a single adult ministry at a large church, and we had about 750 single adults in our ministry. And so many of the guys said, well, you know what? When I get, when I get married, then I'll start working on things. No, you start working on it right now. So if you're not married, the things we're talking about are still things that somehow you can begin to develop in your life even though you're not in a marriage relationship, okay? So we all say we'd be committed to a, a biblical marriage, and some of you, that ideal was crushed, and uh, you've been left with the bitter pain of a failed marriage. Some of you are in the middle right now of a struggling marriage. Uh, for some of you, nobody else knows that you're struggling in your marriage. And, and you're thinking, you know what, I, I'm at this point of disillusionment. I'm so ready to give up. I know it's wrong to leave, but it sure seems like that would be less painful than staying in this marriage. I know how that feels. That's where my marriage was at in 1995. I was a pastor of a church, and my marriage was in the toilet. I'm so busy going to be the best pastor that I can that I left my wife behind and literally left her in the dust trying to run to just catch up with me. And when I finally stopped long enough to listen to her, she had gotten to the point of total hopelessness and total helplessness. And I was just off running doing my thing, a godly thing, right? Being a pastor. And God had to use that to grab a hold of me and shake me a little bit and say, look at your first ministry is to your wife, not to the church. So wait a minute, I'm a pastor. That's right. But you know what? First, I was a husband. And I lost sight of that. 
And I know what it's like when the marriage feels like this. I know what it's like to be in a king-side bed and be on this side of the bed and your wife's on the other side of the bed and that bed feels way, way too small. I understand how you can feel like, I don't know if I can continue to do this. Especially if you're in a difficult marriage. And today, that's what we want to talk about. What do you do when it gets tough? What do you do when it gets tough? What do we normally say when it gets tough? The tough get going. I'm gonna, no, that's not what we're going to do today. When it gets tough, the tough go to God. Okay? And we're going to see today from Peter and Paul um, how they give us some tools and some resources and a perspective of what do I de- do when I'm in a difficult marriage? Well, why is marriage so difficult? Chris spent some time talking about the fall and what the fall has produced both in men and the sense of inadequacy in, in both men and women and, and how since the fall we've responded wrongly to try to compensate for that. And the result of that fall is that now we struggle with selfishness. Now it, it's all about me. I, I want my needs met. Um, so when they're not being met, then I'll either withdraw or I attack. Somehow I'm responding to my needs, my perceived needs not being met. So if the result of the fall alone wasn't enough, then along comes the curse. And the curse, especially on the man, was that now there's going to be thorns and thistles. What used to come easy to you is going to be hard. Where you used to find fulfillment, you're going to feel incompetent and inadequate. And for the woman, the wife, listen to Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, and this is now he's talking about what's going to happen because of the curse, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So the first thing that happens there is this relationship that should be the most incredibly special relationship in the world, a new baby. There's going to be all this pain with it, and a lot of pain. I've never had a baby. I don't know what that feels like, but I have had kidney stones three times. And the women that I talked to that have both had a baby and had a kidney stone said they'd rather have another baby. So I understand a little bit of pain. But now in this relationship that is supposed to be one of the most meaningful ever, there's pain related to it. But there's a second curse that hits. Genesis 3.16 goes on to say this. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a couple fields of thought on what that means, but but my understanding of it is this. You're going to desire the headship of your husband, but he is going to rule over you. See, built right into the curse is this thing inside of a woman who wants to control her husband. Yet, God has placed him over her. Right from because of the curse, there's this going on, you guys. You want to know why marriage is tough? Number one, we're both selfish people. Put two selfish people together and say, now serve the other person. And then one of them is trying to rule over the other one. How well is that going to work? And then... We, we see that this relationship now is going it, to, it's damaged. There's a distortion of, because of sin. 
And now Eve's sinful desire is going to be to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him. And then Adam, he abandons his God-ordained role to lead her, and instead he abdicates his role of leadership and just rolls over and plays dead. So we've got the fall, two selfish people. we got the curse. And then God made them male and female. We look at life through a totally different lens. As my friend Larry Wright would say, we're not just plumbed differently, we're wired differently. We think differently, we look through a whole different set of lenses. Okay? So the man's going to the mall over here to um, buy a pair of sweatpants. He goes into the mall, goes to the sporting goods store, spends $36, and 13 minutes later, he's in his car heading home. His wife goes to the store to buy a, a pair of sweatpants. Two and a half hours later, and having been through five different, six different stores, she spent $138. We're different, aren't we? We think differently. We're wired differently. And you put two people together, and now we're supposed to be compatible. Two selfish people, both trying to rule, and you think totally differently. And we wonder why marriage is a struggle. It's just built into the whole thing. There's a third aspect now of why it's such a struggle. We're born as worshipers. That's part of being created in the image of God. God created us in his image, and part of that is to worship something. But because of the fall, who do I worship? Help me out here. Moi. Me, right? I worship me. God also created us as people who want to accomplish something and build something. We're kingdom builders. But because of the fall, whose kingdom am I trying to build? Help me out again. Mine. Moi, right? So see, in my kingdom... My wife meets all my needs. In my kingdom, my wife never inconveniences me. In my kingdom, she never has expectations that I can't fulfill. In my kingdom, when I come home, my wife, the kids, and the dog meet me at the door, and they look at me and say, oh, great chief warrior who's been out slaving hard all day to provide for us and to take care of us. Thank you, thank you so much. Welcome home to your castle. How can we serve you? Why are you smiling? That doesn't happen in your home? No, it doesn't happen in mine either. So see, I have my idea of what my little kingdom is supposed to be like and how all of the people and circumstances are supposed to work in my kingdom. Guess what? My wife is built as a self-worshipper and a kingdom builder. She's trying to build her own little kingdom. And who is queen of her kingdom? She is. So now she's got her kingdom she's trying to build. I got my kingdom that I'm trying to build. And you know what happens? Those kingdoms collide. And they begin to crash together. Because we're self-worshippers and kingdom builders. See, Paul says this. Sin turns us in on ourselves to focus on ourselves. Sin makes us shrink our lives to this narrow confines of my little self-defined world. And... and Sin shrinks my focus and my motivation and concern to the size of my own wants, my own needs, and my own feelings. Sin causes all of us to be too self-aware and too self-important. 
and it causes me to be offended by the simplest little things. Like she left her shoes in the middle of the door, so I tripped on them. Boy, heads need to roll now, right? That's really a big deal. It's all about me and my little kingdom. Sin causes us to dream these selfish dreams and have all these self-oriented goals. Because of sin, we really do love us. Paul David Tripp says this, when we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. We know what we want, where we want it, why we want it, and how we want it, when we want it, and who we would prefer to deliver it. Our relationships are shaped by an infrastructure of subtle expectations and silent demands. We know what we want from people and how to get it from them. We seek to surround ourselves with people who will serve our kingdom purposes, and we evaluate them not from the perspective of the laws of God's kingdom, but from the perspective of the laws of our own kingdom. And those kingdoms eventually collide. So what do we do? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at a section of 1 Peter chapter 2. And go into 1 Peter chapter 3 today as our primary text is, as we're going to ask this question, how do you persevere in a difficult marriage? And Peter specifically addresses that. But we've got to understand some principles that he's laying out in chapter 2 before we can get into chapter 3. So here's the background. The, the Gentile Christians have been scattered all through Asia Minor, which is a part of modern-day Turkey. And Peter is writing to them. They're being persecuted and treated unjustly. And he's writing to them as to how to respond in this suffering. Persecution is either going to cause us to grow or it causes us to grumble. We either grow through it or we whine about it. And Peter wants to remind us that we have this living hope. And therefore, both their character and their conduct should be different, even in the midst of the suffering and persecution. They have, we have a hope that transcend is much higher than whatever the persecution is that we're going through right now or the suffering. So the question is, how should a believer respond when being persecuted or being treated unfairly for their faith? So he says here in 1 Peter that the fruit of that proven character will be actions that are rooted in submission. What do I do when I'm being treated wrongly or unjustly because of my faith? Our response should always be that of submission. Now, now you guys, that just seems counterintuitive. See, when I'm being treated unfairly, somehow what is inside of me says, I should demand justice. Instead, Peter's going to show our response should be that of submission. And he's going to look at how do I submit when I'm living in an unjust government? How do I respond when, as a Christian, I am not being tolerated in, from the government? He starts there. Then he says, what do you do if you're an employee and you have an unjust employer who's not treating you fairly because of your faith? I'll never forget as a, as a food server in a restaurant, working my way through college and seminary, 
there's me and another guy that were um, part-time on staff at our church, and we were working in this restaurant, um, and we got called in um, by the manager and said, there's a problem. And he said, well, what's the problem? He said, you're claiming all of your tips to report for tax purposes. Yeah. Well, you can't be doing that. Because, see, people take the cash tips they get and just stick it in their pocket and not report it and not have to pay taxes on it. We were reporting everything. He said, you're making everybody else look bad. And it could cause the IRS to want to come in and do an audit because you are making so much more money than everybody else. No, we're not. We're making the same amount. We were just claiming it all. And he said, you, gotta, you, you can't claim it all. We just said, we have to. We have to be honest. We can't lie about that. So what do you do in those situations? You stand up for what is right, yes, but we still submitted, but I didn't obey if they're asking me to disobey God. And you know, we never heard from him again about it. He just said, this is something we feel we need to do to honor God. Never heard from him about it again. So what do you do? So that's um, this whole thing of these tests and the suffering. See, God uses those to test our faith. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And here Peter is setting up the whole rest of his book. He says this in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, rejoice. That sounds familiar to another passage of Scripture. James says the same thing. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that those trials or that testing of your faith is going to produce perseverance in your life. So, this first thing is that we have these trials, this testing, to prove what's genuine. Okay, look at verse 12. Now, it was revealed to them, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, sorry. Peter says this now, in verse 11, you're sojourners, you're exiles, this isn't where you live. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So what's Peter saying here? You know what? You, you live for a different world. You live for a different kingdom, and the kingdom is not all about you. And as you live this out, make sure your conduct is such that it's putting God on display. I like that. Go down to verse 19. Chapter 2. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, when one, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See what he's saying? All right. He's not saying... If you're being a jerk at work and you're being treated, you know, you're suffering because of that, that doesn't credit you. What good is that? But 
when you suffer for doing good. That's good in the eyes of God. And look at verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter's saying this, you've got to understand something. You have been called to suffer. I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, I didn't really think I was signing up for that. I thought Jesus now is supposed to enter my kingdom and make it work. Instead, see, instead Jesus didn't come enter my kingdom. Instead, God places me in his kingdom to accomplish his purposes. And you know what he's called us to? A happy marriage with no problems? Isn't that what Jesus is supposed to do? Make my marriage happy? You're called to suffer. And we want to share in the glories of Christ someday. And we're told if you're going to share in the glories of Christ, you share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, how do I share in the sufferings of Christ? I don't think that I'm going to get nailed up to a tree with spikes put through both wrists and through my feet. I don't think that's going to happen. And it's probably not going to happen to you. But you know what? Maybe where God's called you to suffer is in a difficult marriage. Or in a difficult job. And I think we're about to start experiencing what it's going to be like to call to suffer in a country that no longer tolerates us as Christians. Hang on, it's coming, you guys. So what do we do, get all wigged out? No, that's what God called us to. Count it joy. It's just for a while. How long can this suffering last? Only your lifetime. And how big is your lifetime in light of all eternity? See how our focus gets so messed up? We think it's all about now. This is Our life here is a blip on the radar screen of eternity. So you're going to suffer for a little while. You share in the sufferings of Christ. So to take up your cross tomorrow may be walking into a job where because of your faith, because of your trust in Christ, you are going to be treated unjustly. That's what we're called to, okay? So now in light of that, Peter says this. He starts to show us now what submission to governments and authority over us that are unfair, what a submission in a a marriage look like, what a submission um, with kids look like. So I want to jump in specifically now in chapter 3, verse 1. And let me read... um, look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, 
but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, Peter starts off by saying, likewise, wives. What does he mean, likewise? Well, just like what I just said about employees and just like what I had just said about living under an unjust government, under those things you're to submit. Wives, just like you're supposed to submit over here, all of us are, wives, you're supposed to submit in the context of a difficult marriage. See what it says? Be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word. Now, that's a very strong phrase there in the Greek language, to not obey the word. It doesn't mean... Uh, my husband's not leading devotions around the dinner table at night with the family. He's not obeying God and being the spiritual leader like he should. That's not what that means. That means if he is being antagonistic toward the gospel. It's very strong. To be disobedient to the word there is to be antagonistic, to be fighting against the gospel. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? Saying, wives, if you're married to a husband who's being antagonistic toward the gospel, you're to submit to him. Just like if you're in a government that's being unjust, you're to submit to that government. The leader of, that, of this region at the time was Nero. So when Peter says, you're to be submissive to the government authority over you. The readers heard Nero. Nero so hated Christians that we'd, he'd have them killed and then stuck on stakes. And he'd line the walkways of his gardens with Christians that had been killed, put on stakes, and then burn them alive to be the torches and lights for his parties. Submit to that? Yeah. Just like you're to submit to that. Wives, if you're in a difficult marriage where the husband is being antagonistic toward the word, you're to submit to him. What does that mean? It, it means to place yourself under. To, to rank yourself under. It doesn't mean to see yourself as less. It's a choice to place yourself under the authority of that person. It's a military term, to rank under. Why would we do that? Well, just like Christ submitted himself to all of the stuff and injustice going on to him, he's our model and our example. And in doing so, we put him on display. How do I do that? Peter says this, wives, submit when they see, verse 2, your respectful and pure conduct. When they see your chaste and respectful behavior. And that word there means morally pure, clean, and irreproachable conduct. Modest, pure from carnality. Let him see that. Let him see that kind of behavior. See, the opposite of that, the wrong approach, is to just focus on the external things, external beauty. 
so he said, look it. Do not let your adorning, verse 3, be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. He said, let them see your conduct, not just how you look on the outside. Now, he's not saying, gals, you shouldn't use makeup, you shouldn't braid your hair, and you shouldn't, you know, put on jewelry. He's not saying that. And I'm grateful when my wife puts on makeup. There's nothing wrong. I'm grateful when she dresses nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But he's saying, don't think that that's what's going to win your husband. Don't put your focus on those external things. What he needs to see is your behavior. Why does he need to see your chaste behavior? Because that reveals something about your heart. So he goes on to say this. Well, before I, I go into that, the, the right approach then he says is now to look at the inside, okay? Verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. See, the right approach is to be more concerned about your internal beauty than you are your external beauty. I'm at the age now where I start to see friends that I had in high school and college and we don't recognize each other. And we've developed furniture body. Do you know what furniture body is? That's when your chest starts to drop down into your drawers. Everything kind of moves south. And if our whole focus is on external things, guess what? That's all. It's, it's on a downhill slide, you guys. He says, let it be the inner person of the heart. And he says, the, this meek, gentle spirit. It, it's a spirit in which all things are accepted as his dealings as good. This word meekness is not a negative word. Sometimes we hear gentle and meek and we go, oh, that's bad. We equate gentle and meek with weak. The word meek really is the word power under control. It was used of a horse um, that had been broken so that you could ride, put the saddle on and ride him. So you've got this horse, when they put that saddle on the first time, the horse goes wild, bucks the guy off, right? They keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until finally the, house or the horse is broken. He's broken, okay? Is the horse any less powerful now than he was before? No, he's not. But that power now is under control. So this idea of a gentle meekness is the strong determination to accept something wrong and or difficult and trusting God to somehow bring glory out of it. You see, the opposite of a meek and gentle spirit is a contentious spirit. And the Bible talks about a contentious woman. Uh, that word means to umpire, to decide, and to dispute. A contentious woman is one who in any way is trying to make it her goal to change her husband, and that will prove her to be a manipulator. The contentious woman will always be unable to treat others kindly. So instead of that, th there's to be this quiet, gentle spirit, power under control. And then he says to be quiet. Now, that doesn't mean just shut your mouth. Now, that doesn't mean just don't say anything. It's an attitude of the heart. This quiet inner tranquility can't be disturbed by all of this stuff going on. 
So when your husband's being antagonistic to the Word, you have this settledness that's not rattled by that. You're not shook by that. It's not disturbed by what's happening around you. See, a quiet spirit responds in a godly way to an ungodly situation. The opposite of that is a vexing spirit. Proverbs 21.19 says, A vexing woman is troublesome. That's the external nag, see? Go, wow, that, how in the world do you ever get to the point where you can do and be that way? Well, let's read on and see what he says. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Two key things here. You know why submission is so hard? Because two things get missed. What do these holy women of old do? First of all, they put their hope in God. You know why it's hard to submit to a man that is being unjust? Because your hope is in him changing. And you think if he would just change, then everything's going to be okay. Our hope can't be in another person changing. Our hope's got to be in God. You know, the second reason it's hard for wives to submit to husbands that are being disobedient to the word? Out of fear of what's going to happen. Man, if I let him, if I let him handle the finances, we're going to be foreclosed on and live, the electricity's going to be turned off and we're going to be living in the street. Peter says, don't be frightened by any fear. See, that's pretty powerful. Don't fear any fear. Don't just fear. Don't fear any fear. Because the only way you're going to be able to live with a quiet and gentle spirit is to put your hope in God and don't be controlled by fear. Instead, put your trust in God. You've got to put your hope and trust in God. And those of you that aren't married, You don't have to wait until you're married to start learning how to put your hope in God and learning how to trust Him. You can be developing that characteristic in your life right now, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, regardless of your marital status. So submission starts with a confidence in God that produces submission to His ways and His purposes even when we don't understand. And true submission to an ungodly man says, I trust you because I trust God. And you know what the result of that is? Peter says you can win your husband without a word. You preach the gospel to him every day by how you live in front of him without ever saying a word. That's powerful. God gives you as a wife in a difficult marriage, an incredible power. A power to win your husband to Christ. Submission is powerful. You know, it's interesting. We're going to look at verse 7 and talk about men. Men aren't given the same opportunity to win their wives. Wives, God has given you just this incredible place of influence and power. And that place of influence and power is your submission 
biblical submission, not just roll over and play dead submission. Biblical submission that comes from a quiet and gentle spirit that is so confident in the fact that God knows what he's doing and God is there and God alone is enough. I don't have to have a husband that acts a certain way, thinks a certain way, or treats me a certain way. Okay, guys, we're not off the hook. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, gals, I just want to let you in on something here. You're probably sitting there overwhelmed right now going, man, that is, who is that tough? How in the world, that is tough. I got to tell you, this command that Peter just gave to the husbands is just as tough for them. Living with their wife in an understanding way is just as hard for them as you submitting to a guy that's really a jerk. So he says, husbands, likewise, just like the wives are to submit to an unjust husband, just like employees are to submit to an unjust employer, just like you're to submit to a government over you that's not treating you well, just like that, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That means dwell with them according to knowledge. Guys, we need to understand and know our wives, what they need, what they enjoy, what encourages them. And we're to honor her, it says, as the weaker vessel. This adjective here, weaker, it's comparative and implies really the, the issue here is, is Peter's looking at you are the physically stronger one. So honor your wife, recognize that, protect her, take care of her, know her, provide for her. Even if she's not being submissive. You know what? It's really easy to love a wife that's being submissive. And you know what, guys? It's really easy for a wife to submit to a guy that's being loving. But our context here is you're in a tough marriage where that's not happening. I can never go to God and say, you know what? God, I'd have loved my wife more if she'd have just been a little bit more submissive. No, it doesn't change what God's called me to do. And she's an heir of grace. Spiritually, we are on the same level. See, wives aren't down here and husbands are up here. Even though the husband has the role of being head as Chris has taught and the wife is to be his helper, as, as we've heard, that's not an issue of stating um, how valuable you are. We're, we're heirs, fellow heirs. See, spiritually, we are on we are the ground's level at the cross, okay? So now watch what happens. Husbands, when you love your wives, when you live with them in an understanding way, even if they're being disrespectful, good things happen. And he says, if you're not doing that, your prayers are going to get hindered. Do you realize, guys, if we're not living with our wife in a loving understanding way, providing for them and taking care of them, 
your prayers aren't making it past the ceiling. You can pray all day long that God would do this, this, or whatever. Your prayers aren't making it out the ceiling. That's what Peter's saying here. Your prayers are hindered. Guys, if you don't feel close to God like you know you should or you have in the past, maybe take a look at how you're responding to your wife. Wives, you can win your husbands. Guys, if we don't do what's right, God's not listening to us. That's pretty heavy. So here's the thing. Wives, when you do what God's called you to do, and you submit, even in this very difficult marriage and this hard thing, God gives you the opportunity to put him on display and win your husband. Husbands, when you love your wives and you live with them in an understanding way, it opens, the, it opens the ceiling for God to hear your prayers, and God will listen to you. Now, I'm going to end with a passage of Scripture where... Um, I want us to see how in the world can we pull all that off. But I want to take just a moment and, and first say this. So what if I'm married to an unbeliever? So we talked about this guy who's antagonist toward the gospel. He's probably an unbeliever. What if I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? Well, Paul gives us some insight into that too. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Back to the left, just a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And verse 12. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. Paul says this. To the rest I say, and he's just got done talking to the married. And he got done talking to the unmarried. So he's talked to the unmarried and the married. And now he's going to talk to the married who are in an unequally yoked situation. So he describes that. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay? If you're married to an unbeliever who wants nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with God, you think, boy, if I could just be married to somebody who really loved Jesus, we could go to church together, we could serve together, we could do all these really cool things together. I need to get rid of this guy and, and be with somebody who really loves Jesus. And he says, no. If your unbelieving spouse wants to stay in the marriage, then you stay in that marriage. Why? For the unbelieving husband, verse 14, is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. See, that marriage and that family experiences the blessing of God because of the believer that's in that relationship. And God sets that marriage apart and he sets that home apart. It's not saying that the husband is automatically saved because you're a believer, but God's hand of blessing is on that home because there's a believer in that home. And the longer you can live in that home as a believer, the more you're going to put God on display through your submission and the more you're going to put God on display by your understanding and living with your wife according to knowledge and God's blessing and his grace is there and your kids see that I had a one situation where oh this gal was married to this man that was just awful 
he was an alcoholic, and when he drank, he would be mean, and and he he was just awful. And it's one of those situations where I wish I could have said to her, "Just get rid of the guy. Just divorce him and get rid of him. He is awful." But God called her to stay in it because the guy wanted to stay married. And she continued to live in a horrific situation. And guess who's watching her the whole time she's living in this horrific situation? Her kids. And every one of her kids came to Christ. And you know why they said they came to Christ? Because they knew God was alive and real. You know why they knew God was alive and real? Because they saw the grace of God lived out in their mom to a a man, their father, that they kept telling mom, get rid of him. He's awful, mom. Just divorce him. And they watched her persevere in that difficult marriage and saw the grace of God. And it's that grace of God they saw through their mom dealing with a very unjust, hurtful guy that they said, wow, God must be real. And their whole family came to Christ because of it. That's awesome. Now, not saying if you're living with an unbeliever, be enough of a jerk so that they'll be out of here. Nope, not saying that. So how do we do this? How do we do this? I'm going to leave you with this passage. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 12. This is our closing passage. But put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Put on these things. How should I be responding in these unjust situations? I'm a new creation in Christ. I live for a new kingdom, and it's not mine. I'm to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, Rick Warren was being interviewed, and his wife, on all TV shows that you could imagine, The View. Now, my wife doesn't watch The View, but she would just happen to go through the channels and stop and saw Rick Warren on The View. So this is interesting. So, you know, all of these gals on The View are interviewing him, and they're either married to another woman or divorced or who knows what, you know, that group. And, and Rick and his wife were there, and they're just amazed that he'd been married 30 years. He goes, how do you do it? What does it take to keep a marriage together for 30 years? His response was fascinating. You know what he said? Here's what it takes. Two forgivers. That's what it takes. Two forgivers. We're a new creation. We're God's chosen people. We're holy and loved. Everything I need, I have from God. I don't need to have a wife that loves me. I have that from God. He's chosen me. He set me apart, and he dearly loves me. Because I have all that I need in my relationship with God, you know what that means? I can forbear with my wife. I can forgive, and I can live in submission and put Christ on display. And to this, you've been called. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you've yanked us out of the kingdom and brought us into the kingdom of your son. And because of that, we live new lives and we can put you on display. 
God, we pray that um, even this week, in the difficulties of relationship, whether it's at a job, whether it's in a difficult relationship, whether it's a difficult child, God, whatever the trial in our life this week, God, we want to respond with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience because you're alive in us and we want to put you on display. And thank you, God, for the opportunities you're going to give us to do that even this week. Amen.